My wife recently uh, showed me a set of, of reels on TikTok. I think it was on TikTok. Um, where, where one TikToker randomly goes up to, to people on the street and asks if they're a couple. And if so, he asks them to, to share their story, how, how they met, how long they've been together, what are all the circumstances surrounding it, surrounding it. And then he asks each one of the two people to, to share, what is it that continually draws you to your spouse? Uh, the, the woman might, might say, well, well, he's the hardest working man I know. I just love the way he provides. Uh, the woman might go on to say that, you know, he's dedicated and committed. He comes home every evening. The man might say that I admire her dedication and commitment to caring for people, for how she cares for and provides for the things of our home. Of course, after the clips were over, Steph turned to me and said, now let's act like we're being interviewed by the person on the street. <laughs> what would you say? You know, I was too cool for Sunday school. I was like, I ain't doing that right now. I'm not answering that. It is good to consider and express what draws you to a person that you claim to be devoted to. It's good to, to, to think about, right, why am I so drawn to this person? If we take it out of the realm of relationships with other people and take it to the realm of our relationship with God, I wonder what you would say. What is it about God that draws you to him and keeps you with him? Why are you devoted to God? Why do you claim to trust him? Why are you willing to obey him? Why are you here this morning to worship him? At the beginning of the book we've been studying the last nine weeks now, we, we read about title character Job's committed devotion to the Lord. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Satan came on the scene and told God that Job only was devoted to God because God had so richly blessed him with so many children and so much wealth. Take all his stuff away, ultimately take all his health away, and Job will curse you to your face, Satan proudly boasted. He's only devoted to you. He's only drawn to you because of what you give him, not because of who you are. All Job's stuff has been taken. His health has been depleted, and all his friends have seemingly forsaken him. And he's clinging on for dear life to hope in God, hoping, waiting to hear from him. That's what we find ourselves this morning as we walk through this book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Job chapter 38? If you're using one of the Bibles provided under the cheers, you can find it on page 443. And this morning, we'll walk through chapter 38 of Job through chapter 42, verse 6. As you walk through these chapters this morning, here's what I think is the main idea, kind of overarching theme tying them all together. And so the main idea of the sermon. God 
is very great and we are very small. And God shows us that gap to grow our affections for him. God is very great and we are very small. And God shows us that gap to grow our affections for him. As we walk through this text of scripture this morning, we'll unpack that main idea through two sub points we see in this passage. Number one, observing God's works lessens our view of ourselves. Observing God's works lessens our view of ourselves. We'll see that in chapters 38 through 39. And then point number two, observing God's works grows our view of God. We'll see that in chapter 40 through chapter 42, verse 6. So number one, observing God's works lessens our view of ourselves. And number two, observing God's works grows our view of God. Number one, observing God's works lessens our view of ourselves. Look with me at chapter 38 as we read verses 1 through 3 together. We read, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job gets what he wants, an audience with God. God speaks to Job finally. After 37 chapters of suffering in misery and not knowing why. After 37 chapters of calling out for God to respond to him. After 37 chapters of hearing from everybody but God. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu, Job's friends and supposed counselors. Now God finally speaks to Job. Now, the way some of us read the first few verses of this passage is not only God finally speaking to Job, but God finally laying the smackdown on Job for talking reckless. But as you read closely, I think we see this is not God meaning to demean Job or demolish Job, but to draw Job closer to himself and demonstrate his great love and care for him. I mean, just look at even the way God is referred to in verse one. The Lord, Yahweh. Uh, that's what it means when you see that word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament. It's a transliteration of the covenant name for God. And that might be new to you if you've never read the Bible before. If so, it's something you wanna kinda of tuck away in your mind for future reading. Or that might be new to you if you're a veteran Bible reader, but a novel concept as we've been reading Job. Because for most of this book, we have not seen this reference for God used. Oh, God has been talked about a lot, but using the terms God or the Almighty, we haven't seen this covenant name, Lord or Yahweh used to talk about God since way back in chapters one and two, when all was well with Job and God. 
when God seemed very near to Job. Since then, however, God feels distant to Job, disinterested in Job, with all God's suffering and all God's silence. But here, when God finally speaks directly to Job at the end of all his suffering and misery, we read of him in covenantal terms, in terms of a covenant relationship. He's the God who's in close covenant with Job and as such displays and shows a covenantal love for him. A never ending, never giving up, never going away of love of God for his people. It was sweet to be in relationship with God. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He never casts you away. He never cuts you off. He's there with and for you through everything. The Lord is still with Job and answers Job, which goes against what everybody else was saying. Job's friends said that Job had been denied by God, abandoned by God, rejected by God. But if God were like that, he would not be the covenant-keeping, covenant-making, never covenant-breaking God. Elihu, who we heard from last week, said in chapter 35, verses 12 and 13, that when wicked people like Job called out to God, that God would not answer them as a form of judgment for their sins. He said, surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Job, you keep on calling out to God, but your empty talk won't get any answers. God don't listen to sinners. Don't you know that? Well, that argument gets demolished here as the Lord does answer his servant, Job. And he talks to him out of the whirlwind. Uh, Notice here just another weather analogy that we've seen time and again throughout these last few chapters. We've talked about how there's something mysterious in a storm and something majestically powerful in a storm that reveals God. The whirlwinds in the Bible can hurt people, can bring harm and destruction to God's enemies, Or they can save God's people and draw them closer to the Lord. Remember, the great prophet Elijah was drawn up to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2 in a whirlwind. Which purpose is the whirlwind serving here? What is to help and not to hurt? God is drawing Job near through speaking to him. But he first rebukes Job in verse 2. But not for some secret sin that his friends kept saying he committed but for darkening counsel by his many words without full knowledge, by speaking words about the way things are and how God operates the world without totally knowing or without total wisdom. You see, God can and will correct us. But there's a great difference between God correcting us for ignorance and God correcting us for iniquity. You see, being ignorant is not a sin. It means that you lack knowledge, and so you need to be very careful not to speak as if you have full knowledge. Job has spoken at times as if he's had full knowledge, saying that God has made him his enemy, that God was punishing him without cause, wishing that he'd never been born and wishing that he'd escaped the path that he was on of suffering. 
Job spoke rashly. Job spoke out of his suffering. Job spoke out of his ignorance. He did not know what God was doing, but Job was not committing iniquity with his words, was not sinning. And so God doesn't condemn Job here, but he confronts him in order to correct him of his ignorance by revealing more of his ways. And he does it in this passage through an ongoing, seemingly never-ending series of rhetorical questions. Right? Rhetorical questions that don't have, you're not supposed to get an answer, but are meant to draw us into deeper investigation and examination. He tells Job in verse 3, I will question you and you make known to me all that I am doing. It's not an interrogation by a detective meant to evoke a confession of guilt, but rather it's a guided investigation from a good God to evoke from Job a confession of praise. Amen. Starting at verse 4 and stretching all the way through verse 38, God gives Job a personal tour of all the inanimate things of creation. He questions Job of his knowledge of the creation and control of all the elements of the earth, all the kind of architecture that the world is built upon. I mean, look at verse 4. God asked, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have full understanding of things. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or drop down to verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves stay. <laughs> God calls Job and us to realize our limitations here, our finiteness in both understanding and in years. We are not eternal. Man was not yet made when God made the earth and the seas. And friends, God made the earth and the seas. Not some mysterious occurrence that created some kind of combustion between dust and gas and out came the entire world that we see. No, God says here, I laid the foundation of the earth. I made the sea burst out of the womb. God birthed the entire world. Where were you when it happened, Joe? I mean, Genesis 1 tells us that the earth and the seas were made on the third day. Mankind wasn't even created until the sixth day. And Job, you weren't even the first man made. In verse 16, down in verse 16, God goes further to show Job's limits. Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? A couple of weeks ago, the news headlines were dominated by the tragic event where the Ocean Gate Titan subcraft searching for the Titanic's wreckage suffered a catastrophic implosion as it descended 12,500 feet below sea level. That submarine was outfitted with state-of-the-art technology. It was constructed of carbon fiber and titanium, giving it an outstanding combination of high strength and low weight. 
Yet it still could not, with all its technology and all its fabrication, withstand the enormous water pressure so far below in the sea. It burst as it was going down to the bottom. But here we read that God takes a stroll on the sea floor. He walks in the recesses of the deep as if it's concrete. And he is totally unaffected. He goes anywhere and he sees and knows everything. Whether it's down to the gates of death, verse 17, or out to the expanse of the earth, verse 18. What man can see and comprehend and control things high and low and wide? Only God can. God is expansive. Which sheds some light on what the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. That God would grant us believers strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the depth and the length of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's amazing. As expansive as God is, so expansive expansive is his love for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might know him. That's why passages like this are not just spoken directly to Job, but recorded for us today. God goes on to show Job other things that are beyond him, that are hidden to him. Verse 22, Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hell, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle? And the answer is no. All we see is when the snow and when the hell fall. We have no idea exactly where they come from. God says, I've got an endless inventory of snow and all other kinds of elements, and he deploys them. Not just to give kids snow days in one part of the world, but to stop invading armies from advancing in battle in another part of the world. Oh, the limitless resources and purposes of God. In keeping with the theme of precipitation, God moves from snow and hail to rain in verses 25 through 27. Yes, who is it that brings rain on a land where no man is? On the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Notice here, rain's life-giving effect on lifeless things. God caused rain to fall on the ground and it sprouts up stuff. God works for the land's sake and not for man's sake. It's for his good pleasure. God causes the rain at a place where no human being even lives to care for the land that he made and intimately loves. He continues with the picture of weather elements in verses 34 through 38. He asked Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, God, says, I control and command clouds and rains and storms. They report to me like troops for battle. Here we are, sir. 
and they respond obediently to his every command. Who can do this but God? It's passages like this that that are loaded up as, as the backdrop. For New Testament passages like Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, where, where Jesus is on a boat out on the sea in the midst of a storm with his disciples. And he rises up and rebukes the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So that the disciples asked, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? In these minds of these Jewish disciples are Old Testament passages like Job 38, where only God can command and control winds and rains and storms. What sort of man is this then? Well, he is the God man, Jesus Christ. But friends, if you're here this morning, having been taught and believing the lie that Jesus never claimed to be God, Look very carefully. The whole Bible is testifying to that fact. God makes himself known, makes his power, his wisdom, his care, his love known in every realm of creation. Look at everything around you, God tells Job in these first 38 verses. And he tells him to keep on looking as he continues this guided tour through his creation and moves from inanimate things, unliving things, to animate things, to living creatures at the end of chapter 38 and through chapter 39, to show his ways and how he works. Look at verse 39, chapter 38. God says, can, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite for the young lions? It's striking. Because we so often view the lion as the hunter. But God here says, the lion can only hunt what I have hunted for him and brought to him. The king of the jungle completely relies on the king of the universe. God moves from leading us to look at a large lion to a little bird. Verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey? When it's young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. Well, it's God who provides for them. He provides for his creatures great and small, giving them what they need to survive. And if, as as Eartha read for us earlier in Matthew 6, God so feeds and cares for the birds of the air. Will he not give us what we need to survive? To live seeing that we are of more value than them. And not to push the picture too far here, but, but, but notice something profound in, in, in these few verses. In God providing the prey for the lion and for the bird means that he gives something up for them that they might live. He gives something precious up. He gives up another life. God gives up a zebra's life so that the lion might be fed. God gives up a deer's life so that a raven might eat its carcass and be sustained. And as we are of more value than them, God gave up something so much more valuable for us. He gave up his very own son's life 
so that we might be saved. God gave up Jesus to die so that you and I might have eternal life. Suffering and death can bring others sustenance and salvation. Oh, the things that we don't know, but that God shows us even in miniature form in the animal world. Who can know the mind of God? Well, into chapter 39, he continues to show us. And we continue to see God's control and care for his creatures. In chapter 39, verse 1, he talks of his overseeing and intimate involvement in the birthing process of an obscure mountain goat removed from human involvement and who lives out in the wild. He asked Job, do, do you know when these mountain goats give birth? Do you, do you see the calving of the does? Can you number the months? Of course not. You don't even think about a mountain goat. But God does. And he cares for a mother mountain goat through the whole birthing process, the entire time of that birth, from the the pains and the hardships and the fears and the worries of pregnancy out to the joy of bearing a young doe and watching that young doe grow and go out into the open. (laughs) The Lord cares for everything. But we continue to see God's control of and care for animals in the wild in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 39. Notice in verse 5, the observation of the wild donkey. Wild, not by his own will, but wild because God wills him to be wild. The end of verse 5 says he's free because God frees him. God looses his bonds and gives him his boundaries to live in the arid or dry plains. Verse 7, no human driver can rein him in. He hears not their shouts. Oh, but he absolutely listens to God. Or verse 9, God asked Job, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Verse 11, will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? And now many oxen are used by men for work, but not the wild ox. He is unmanageable. Too strong and too headstrong to be domesticated. You couldn't bind him up to do your bidding. He's too wild to serve you, but he's all too willing to serve God. In verses 13 through 18, God moves from from those animals who are wild to those who are weak and lack wisdom. And uses the ostrich as his primary example. The ostrich waves its wings proudly, boasting of a great takeoff, but it can't even fly. And while constrained to the earth, it lives on earth quite foolishly. Verse 14, this ostrich leaves her eggs to the earth, leaves her eggs on the ground, her young ones about to hatch, but she forgets that doing so might lead to the foot of a wild beast stomping them out. Why would she act so foolishly, so carelessly? Verse 17, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. God makes some creatures as wise as an owl and others as dumb as an ostrich. He does what he wants with those who are his. And yet, this ostrich lacking wisdom 
and lacking the ability to use its wings to fly, verse 18 says, can use its feet to flee faster than the fastest beast of the earth. Laughing at the mighty and majestic horse that God goes on to talk about so highly in the next set of verses. It just makes the point. You can't figure God out. You see the, the accumulated picture that's being painted in chapters 38 and 39? It reveals the reality that we, men and women, as important as we are, are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around us. The world revolves around and relies upon God. God is sovereign. And his sovereign goodness is seen in his sovereign government over all things. The land and the seas, the rain and the wind, the wild donkey and the wild ox and the wisdomless ostrich. He wisely controls and cares for everything. God guides Job to see all his workings in the world and calls him to account in chapter 40. Job has been longing to argue his case before God, to be granted vindication that he's done nothing wrong to deserve his fate. So God calls Job to, to argue his case. Answer me. Show me, Job, what I should have done in your case. Go ahead. Try to find some fault in anything I do. And look at Job's response in verses 4 and 5. All he can answer, all he can answer with after seeing all God has done and is doing is with silence. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken and will not answer. Spoken once, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no more. Job doesn't retract any of his words or claim to have spoken sinfully, but neither does he add to his words. It's an incredible response. It's incredible that Job doesn't respond with disgust or disappointment or dissatisfaction. He doesn't say, what does any of this have to do with my situation, with my suffering? I mean, you have this young talking about ostriches and storehouses and mountain goats. And I'm in misery over here. Answer me why you put me through all this. Answer me why it's taken you so long to respond. Answer me what is the purpose of all this pain? There's none of that. Job has finally heard God's voice and he is content with hearing God speak and learning from him. God shows Job, I got the whole world under control, including your little life. Friends, it's a good thing that God shows us how small we are. Shows us that he's God and we are not. Shows us he's got everything under control. So we need not contend with him or complain about him or grow anxious to try to figure everything out on our own, but rather to submit to him and his sovereign and good rule over us. 
May the Lord use passages like this to help us to decrease so that he might increase. But silence and smallness are not God's only goals of showing us who he is. There are other purposes for which God reveals himself and his work in the world. Not just to lessen our view of ourselves, but to grow our view of and affections for him. Which brings us to our second point. Observing God's works grows our view of God. Observing God's works grows our view of God. God has more he wants Job and us to see. He wants a deeper and more mature response to his revelation. And so notice in chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, God approaches Job a second time out of the whirlwind, saying, I will question you and you make it known to me. And he challenges Job, not in a harsh way, but in a humbling way, to see if you would even put me in the wrong. Condemn me for how I do things in order to put yourself in the right. Job's friends had claimed as much that in pleading his righteousness, he was saying that God did wrong. God doesn't go quite that far to condemn Job. He does go so far as to correct him. He questions him, drawing him in and asking if he really has the ability to adjudicate, to judge not only his own case, but any cases of right and wrong. He tells Job in verse 10 of chapter 40. If you are able, then adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, with, with glory and splendor. In other words, sit on the throne as king of the universe and see how you judge. Verse 11, look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Verse 14, if you can do that, then I will acknowledge to you and agree that your own right hand can save you. The point is, Job, even if you are in the right, you don't have the power to plead your own case, to make the right determinations and the right determinative moral judgments. You don't have the power, the might to secure your own vindication. Only God has that power to make perfect moral judgments and to put down the wicked and vindicate the righteous. And so you must entrust everything over to him. Not just as it relates to the physical realm, which he's just shown us in chapters 38 and 39, but also in the spiritual realm. And in the remainder of chapter 40, through chapter 41, God demonstrates his great power even over the spiritual realm through the word pictures of two great beasts. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 40, Behemoth, and all through chapter 41, Leviathan. Well, look at verse 15 of chapter 40 as we see first, Behemoth. It's the only time the name is mentioned in the entire Bible. In the original Hebrew, it's simply the plural name for beast. Given that this one beast is mentioned here in the plural, gives the idea of the magnitude of its strength. One commentator notes, it's like a super beast. Super strong. Look at verse 16, the references to its strength and power. 
or verse 17, his, his tail is as stiff as cedar wood. In verse 18, his bones and limbs are as solid as metal. You can't bend or break them. Yet as superior as this beast of the land is, he is under God's control. And note back up in verse 15, God says that this great behemoth, this great beast is made, is created just like I made you, Job. He eats grass like an ox. You know, the ox I previously said that I care for and feed. Verse 19, Lord says, Behemoth is the first of, of his works. Not in time, but in preeminence. Again, just noting how formidable this beast is. Only God can put him down. Only him, the end of verse 19 says, who made him can bring near his sword. In verses 23 and 24 tell us that this great beast is not frightened by anything. And no one can take or capture him. He can't be taken by the eyes or pierced through his nose with a snare. He's too powerful for man to defeat or domesticate. And without pause, God goes on to present and betray another seemingly inconquerable, unconquerable beast in chapter 41. This one of the seas. His name is Leviathan. Look at chapter 41, verse 1. God asks, can, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Verse 5, will, will you play with him as with the bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Of course not, that'd be crazy. Verse 7, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? No. Verse 8, lay your hands on him. <laughs> Remember, you will not do it again. You'll be sorry for trying to go up against this great beast of the sea. Verse 9, the hope of a man is false to capture him. A man is laid low even at the sight of him. Verse 10, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. <laughs> but check this out, the second half of verse, verse 10. Who then is he who can stand before me? <laughs> who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God paints this great picture of the terrifying Leviathan, unbeatable. But he says, if you think he's fierce, what then of me who created this terrible beast? Neither Leviathan nor behemoth nor any human whom I've created can stand in my presence can take me down, can challenge or restrain or defeat me. The whole world is mine and everything in it. I own and rule everything. You can't go up against me. <laughs> all you must do is trust me. The all-powerful one, the all-powerful and good one. The Lord goes on to describe even more of Leviathan's might and terror in the rest of the chapter. His limbs are strong, he says in verse 12. Verse 14, his teeth are sharp and full of terror. Verses 19 and 20, he breathes out fire and smoke. No one can beat him. Verse 25, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Verse 26, the sword might reach him, but it has no effect. 
Neither does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Nothing can pierce his tough skin. Verse 28, neither can arrows or slingshots do any damage. Verse 33, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. And we have to ask, who are these great creatures exactly? Behemoth and Leviathan. Well, we don't know exactly. Amen. Both seem to describe real creatures, real animals that God made. Even if using fantastical and poetic language to describe their strength and terror. I mean, there's not really a fire-breathing animal that exists. At least that we've seen. Some have taken behemoth to describe a, a hippopotamus, a hippo with his great, his great strength and with his diet of grass and with his habitat, as, as Job explains here, God explains here in Job, being in the marsh near the water. And they've taken Leviathan to describe an alligator with its sharp teeth and its tough, seemingly impenetrable skin. And we don't know for sure. But whatever these strong natural beasts are, they seem to illustrate the power and terror of greater, seemingly unconquerable, supernatural spiritual forces. I mean, the ancient Near East, the, 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 the time in which Job lived and the Old Testament was written, the sea itself was thought to represent uncontrollable evil. And all the more a great creature of the sea. Which is why the psalmist Asaph, in Psalm chapter 74, verses 13 and 14, and talking about God's rescuing his people from Egypt, his people Israel from Egypt, he says, You divided the sea by your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, a sea monster, not literally, but figuratively. Leviathan represented as a sea monster stood as a great enemy opposed to God's plan to rescue his people. And here in Job chapter 41, God talks of Leviathan as a terrible fire breathing creature of the sea. It reminds you of a dragon. But dragons are only for kids' fairy tale stories or for Bible stories. Listen to how other passages talk of this figure. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, where Isaiah talks about the future redemption of Israel, he says, In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpents, Leviathan, the twisting serpents, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Listen again to how Leviathan is described. A dragon, a serpent in the sea. It's these terms and phrases that the Bible will once again use in the final book of Revelation to portray Satan. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And a few verses later, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says, he stood on the sand of the sea. So, so what's the point of it all? It seems God is showing all the great might and terror of supernatural evil. Satan and death, which is what many think behemoth is an illusion of, given the close association in the Bible between Satan and death and how death is often portrayed as an unconquerable force of evil. Well, both forces, Satan and death, are too fierce and too strong for any man to war against or contain, but not for God. Now, why is that good for Job? Well, because throughout this book, death and the devil have been on Job's heels, ready to ruin him, ready to pounce on him, but they can't because God has them on a leash. You see, in verse 40, in chapter 41, right, you couldn't put Leviathan on a leash to play with with your girls. But God has the greater Leviathan, Satan, on a leash. You see, you remember back in chapters 1 and 2, Satan, as fierce as he was in wanting to attack Job, could only go as far as God allowed. Right? You, you ever been to somebody's house and you know they got a dog and that joint be roaming around in the yard and you don't know when you go over there where he is and so you walk and walk and walk and that joker come out of nowhere full speed and he lunge at you and you think I'm done. I only to see that there's a line that you didn't necessarily see that's tied to a tree and as soon as he's about to pounce he got to yank back. Well, well, that's how, praise the Lord, right? That's how God has Satan. He could only go as far as God allowed. Take his possessions, Satan, but you can't touch his body. All right, now I'll give you permission. Go touch his body, but you can't take his life. Evil, even though it seems uncontrollable like a wild dog, is not unchecked. God contains evil. He snatches it back. He uses it for his own purposes. Job was not privy to the heavenly scene that we were exposed to in chapters 1 and 2. And amazingly, here's the crazy thing. Amazingly, even now, God does not explain all that happened. God doesn't explain to Job that conversation and challenge that he had with Satan. He doesn't explain that Satan could only go so far. He never tells Job that. God doesn't explain all his plans. Rather, he exhibits all his power. The greatest forces and your greatest foes are not greater than me. I'm powerful over death, over evil, even if you can't see that line that I'm holding. For us, all we might see is the vicious dog, the ferocious attack. 
And God don't show us how much leash he's given. All God tells us is that I'm on the other end of it. And so you can trust me. I'm powerful over whatever's on the other end of that thing. And I won't let it hurt you. And it causes Job to praise God. It ought to cause us to praise God. Because God may not show us all that he's done or is doing in our lives. But you know what God has shown us? That he is great, greater over our greatest enemies, Satan and death. And he's shown it to us in a far clearer picture than he's shown it to Job through the imagery of Behemoth and Leviathan. He's shown it to us through his very own son, Jesus Christ, who became a man and who destroyed the works of Satan by resisting all his temptations and living a life fully pleasing to God. He rescued us. Jesus rescued us by living for us and then going to the cross and dying in our place as our substitute. That great enemy, Satan, was there at the cross, scheming, filling the minds and the mouths and the motives of the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers who put Jesus to death. But Satan was not all strong and sovereign. God was in control, using Satan's vicious and ferocious scheming to put his son to death so that all those who are under Satan's sway might be broken up out of it by his son's death. Right? Satan looked like he was in control when Jesus was on the cross. Satan, you ain't doing nothing. The Lord is in control. The very thing that you want to see happen is the very thing I will use to cause your destruction. Jesus died for us according to God's plan for God. And he was buried. But even there in the grave, that other great enemy, death, Behemoth could not hold or control Jesus Christ. God is greater than death. And so on the third day, the son of God, equal with God, the father in every divine perfection, rose up out of the grave, bursting forth out of that grave, demonstrating and proclaiming loudly his victory over sin and over Satan and over death, his complete victory and dominance over all our enemies. So that all who put their trust in him might also know that even with all the doom that might seem to dominate our lives, death and sin and Satan don't dominate because God has dominion over death and sin and Satan. And so even the seeming doom must not be for our destruction, but for our good. Job, having seen something of God's might, can only praise the Lord who is so big and so good, who is so God. He says in chapter 42, verse 2, oh, now I know. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. All that God means to accomplish will be accomplished. Even if, like Job, we don't understand all the means he uses to accomplish them. We know he means good for us. That's enough. Job goes on to quote God. He, he, he asks, who is it 
that hides counsel without knowledge? That was God's first question to Job in chapter 38. We'll see Job's answer here. I have uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He sounds like David in Psalm 131, don't he? Right? I will not occupy my mind anymore with things too great and too marvelous for me. I'll just be like a little child in your lap, content with you. And then look at verse 5, the kind of climax of it all. Job says, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, my eye sees you. I heard about you. I knew a lot about you. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job thought he knew God before this whole ordeal. And he did. I mean, we read that he was an upright man who followed and feared God. We, we read that the man gave sacrifices to God for himself and for his family. We, we read that the man brought up his, his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We, we read that the man washed his wife with the water of the word. Right? The, the man knew God. Oh, but now Job sees God more clearly. Right. He knows God more intimately. He loves God more deeply. And it's not because God has brought Job less suffering. But because God has shown Job more of himself. Yeah. Which is encouraging to us. Because of how God has shown himself to Job. Not through some miraculous one-time encounter. Not through some secret revelation where God kind of pulled Job aside to a kind of cave and kind of just showed him himself for this one-time event. But through his word. By speaking to him. And friends, God is still speaking to us. By his word. This word that we have the privilege of possessing. We have this treasure in these jars of clay so that even when the cracks in these jars start to expose, we aren't discouraged, but we say even though the outer man is wasting away, oh, that inner man can be renewed day by day. We do and will live through some hard and horrible times. But we don't need less misery. We don't need less sorrow. We don't need less suffering, less bills, less burdens. We don't need less crime or less calamity. We don't need more answers or more explanations. What we need is more of the Lord. What we need is to see and savor more of him. And he makes himself known to us through his word. So if you need an invitation, a greater invitation or incentive to read the Bible or to come to church, then take no more than this. You're going to need more of God for more of life's issues. Right. And you only get more of God as he shows himself through his word. Amen. In the presence of God, Job's lay, Job lays himself low and we read repents in dust and ashes. And what is not repentance of some secret hidden sin that's called suffering as the friends have suggested or even repentance of sin of slandering God through his suffering and we'll see in the next passage God says twice that Job has speaking, spoken rightly about me even if sometimes 
ignorantly and rashly and lacking full knowledge. Something Job even here might be expressing through his words, a sorrow for, for speaking rashly and, and without full knowledge. But, but there's another real and legitimate way we might understand this. If you've got an ESV Bible, notice the footnote that's attached to that word repents. And see at the bottom, the, the alternate way it can be translated as I am comforted. So the last, last half of verse six would read, I am comforted in dust and ashes. Now, literarily, that makes sense, right? The Bible is a piece of literature, right? The things it has at the beginning and ends, right, can sometimes be very important, kind of bookends. So, so remember, back in chapter 2, verse 8, after boils covered Job's body, we read that he scraped himself and sat in ashes, which is how Job's friends found him a few verses later in chapter 2, where we read that they went to show him some comforts. And starting in chapter three, stretching all the way to chapter 37, Job's three friends and Elihu have spoken and spoken and spoken, spouting out their wisdom and false accusations and their supposed reasons for Job's suffering. But after all their words, Job has told them, y'all are some miserable comforters. He has yet to be comforted. But here at the end of God speaking to his servant, even as Job still sits in the ashes that represent his suffering, he is finally comforted with God himself. He's satisfied with the Lord. The suffering is still there. It hasn't been removed, but God is there too. And that is enough. Satan said it couldn't be the case. Job only worships you for what he can get from you, not for who you are. But Job says, God is enough for me. Friends, God never promises to give us answers for everything or for anything. God says, I'm good, and I'm powerful, and I'm present, and that's enough. Is God enough for you? And some TikToker stopped you on the street and asked, what is it that draws you to God? What answer would you give? My prayer is that these chapters this morning have given us much to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you simply for revealing your glory and your greatness. And we pray that in light of who you are and how good and big and powerful and loving you are to us, that we would trust you all the more. Help us not to live in fear or anxiety, but to live in faith in a good and a perfect God who loves those who are his. Lord, draw those even in the closing moments of our service even now who are not yours, that they might become yours and know the sweetness of dwelling with the ever-living, ever-loving God. Pray this in your son Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.